1: Yes, it is, and welcome back. Monday, January 17th, 2022. As we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, it pains me to say almost every commentary gets him, Dr. King, Reverend King, and what he represented wrong. Fundamentally wrong. The wrong lessons have been learned and the wrong things are being remembered. Understanding Reverend King right would be a great solve to this country and our future. But of course, the error of misunderstanding him is exactly why we need that solve in the first place. To start, let's please recall he was a reverend. We hear a great deal about Martin Luther King and Dr. King, and yes, he did have a PhD. But about 20 years ago, when Dr. Bennett was speaking about Reverend King at Ebenezer Baptist Church, Reverend King's church, his widow, uh, Coretta Scott, was in the audience. She went up to Dr. Bennett after his speech and said, thank you for addressing him as reverend. That's what he was, and that's how he wanted to be remembered. Indeed, Reverend King said almost exactly that before he was killed. He said, I don't want to be remembered for anything other than a man who did his best to be a good Christian, quote, quote. Now, why is this important? For years, we have been told that policy— should be divorced from social values and religion, that we should not try to influence policy with religion and social values or mix politics and social values with religion. But folks, step back. Is that right? Is that our history or even the best of our history? First, let me say that every great social and political movement in this country came out of the churches, the man who was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen, if they still teach him any more, our first president, George Washington, said in his farewell address quote, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to, subpo- to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. These firmest props of the duties of men and citizens, quote. Then think about our movements to end slavery in the 19th and the civil rights movements of the 20th centuries. They all came out of the churches. I don't think you can find a speech of Abraham Lincoln's that didn't cite the Bible. Now think of the song on the lips of the Army of the Potomac as they fought the Civil War. They sang something called the Battle Hymn Hym of the Republic. It opens up, saying, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The refrain, his truth keeps marching on. And then there's the beautiful line, as he died to make men holy, we shall die to make men free. No he, no emancipation. Same for the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. It came out of the churches and it was led by men with names like Reverend Martin Luther King And who is his lieutenant and best friend, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, who endorsed Ronald Reagan for president in 1980. I heard a caller today tell Dennis Prager Ronald Reagan had nothing but contempt for Martin Luther King. Why would Ralph Abernathy endorse Ronald Reagan? Who was the Jewish leader who marched with King in Selma, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel? Pause on Heschel a moment. He fled Nazi Germany. And when asked why he left New York to march in Selma, he said this, quote, You cannot worship God and then look at a human being created by God in God's own image as if he or she were an animal, close quote. If there's a better statement of the understanding of our Declaration of Independence Clause that all men are created equal, I haven't seen it. Folks, Reverend King said, quote, The most important part of church is what you do when you leave the front doors at the end of the sermon, close quote. In other words, What do you do with the sermon once you get onto the streets? Do not tell me religion has no place in policy or politics or that we cannot look to religion and social values to inform our policies. That sentiment would have been wholly strange and alien to not only George Washington, but also Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King. And were it true, slavery would have never ended and there would be no civil rights movement either. That's point one. Point two. Today's self-appointed legatees of Reverend King have nothing in common with Reverend King. Today's so-called civil rights leadership fundamentally misunderstands what Reverend King thought of this country. The Al Sharptons and Ibram Kindis and Jesse Jacksons and Jeremiah Wrights, and yes, even the Barack Obamas, they don't understand what King understood about this country. It makes one wonder if they've ever read a full speech of his. Why do I say this? They all choke on speaking to the greatness of this country. They are much happier talking about how this country's founding was racist or how this country is today still systematically racist. When President Obama was asked if he would speak to American exceptionalism, he said America is as exceptional to him as Great Britain is to the British or Greece is to the Greeks. Folks, that's not how King saw it cannot find me a speech where he did not praise this country. Sure, he said it had to live up to its founding, but live up to its founding because it was a great founding. A few examples. Here was King at his famous I Have a Dream speech at the March in Washington, and note the love of our founding. He said, quote, in a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black as well as white, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Close quote. Now listen to how he ended this speech. It was a tribute to a country by a man who knew and loved this country. It was a tour of the country he loved, if you will. He said, quote, And this will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, This must become true. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightened Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain, Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing the words of the old Negro spiritual free at last. Free at last. Thank God almighty. We are are free at last. Who speaks of freedom here? And please, folks, notice the inclusiveness. Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics. Al Sharpton led race riots and anti-Semitic riots in New York City. The Smithsonian today has a terrible exhibit online and, in fact, in its African American History Museum that blames all whites simply for being white. King would have none of that. Oh, Malcolm X would. King wouldn't. Finally, the notion of resegregation that I've spoken of often here in monologues past. Again and again, King spoke about the moral wrong of segregation based on race, whether it was whites keeping blacks from certain places or blacks keeping whites from certain places. Yes, he was asked about this on Meet the Press in 1960 with a reporter trying to get him on how whites don't eat at Harlem restaurants. And King said, quote, I don't know of places in Harlem that will not serve white customers. If such places exist, I think it's a blatant injustice and just redevelopment of the thing we are trying to get rid of. So I certainly wouldn't go along with that, close quote, the kind of thing we are trying to get rid of. Malcolm X would support such a thing. Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't. And he wouldn't replace the canon of Western ethics with intellectual death due to it being written by dead white men. He'd wonder why Aristotle and Shakespeare and Plato and our founders were no longer taught were he alive today. As he put it, quote, not until 1948 when I entered Crozier Theological Seminary in Chester, Pennsylvania, did I begin a serious intellectual quest for a method to eliminate social evil. I turned to a serious study of the social and ethical theories of the great philosophers from Plato and Aristotle down to Rousseau, Hobbes, Bentham, Mill, and Locke. All of these masters stimulated my thinking, such as it was, and while finding things to question in each of them, I nevertheless learned a great deal from their study." Close quote. Today we want to deny those brains that scholarship to young children. Oh, today those scholars would be dismissed for the color of their skin. Malcolm X would refer to them as white thinkers. Martin Luther King Jr., as you can see, would have been nothing without them and knew it. I wish today's children knew what King knew or taught. It took a lot of work for this country to appreciate him and it. We're now on a quest to depreciate it. And it's not getting any of us anywhere closer to the better. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show, 602-508 zero nine six zero. It's um it, it it's a continual effort, if not a constant effort to try and correct the recent historical record as much as it is to try and correct what's taking place before our very eyes. We've we've become used to problems with historical revisionism. Who knew that the revisionism would be as recent as the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies but it's quite another thing to try and fix things that take place before our very eyes, isn't it? The revisionism that takes place before our very eyes. I just There's any number of things you could think of. You might think of Ali Velshi standing in front of a city on fire saying this is a mostly peaceful protest, um, thinking maybe the camera isn't covering the inferno. Um, but that, that, that's just possibly the most egregious um, the, uh, or, the, or the most obvious that comes to mind. You have a lot of it with civil rights, too. Joe Biden tried it last week, tried to trot it out last week in his speech in Georgia, uh, con- comparing the Republican Party of today as the party of Jefferson Davis and Bull Connor. Uh, e- there's no doubt in my mind that the the, the idea really the late term pregnancy of that week coming into the um, into the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday was what was on the political advisors' minds. And, of course, some of this has worked its way into today's conversation. As I mentioned earlier, uh, there was a caller to the, um, to, the, uh, to, the, to the Prager show earlier who was trying to point out uh, all the Republican sins when it came to Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Act. Um, that's not really the way it happened at all. Uh, if you um if you if you know your history well listen i 'll give you alvin felsenberg he he 's done the best work on this al felsenberg University of pennsylvania he 's been on this show any number of times uh, when it came to the thousand nine hundred and sixty four civil rights act I remember a few things: the Republican party was the party that the african American population went to. Uh, If they had any political grievance, basically from 1865 to roughly 1960, 1960, even uh, Martin Luther King's vote, his own vote was up for grabs as between Kennedy and Nixon. His father, Martin Luther King, senior, was a Nixon supporter. But now think of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, because that's when everything turned and it turned because the nominee for the Republican Party was Barry Goldwater. And Barry Goldwater voted against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And it was just way too easy and way too convenient to attach to him the notion of racism or racist. He was one of the few people who voted against the 1964 Civil Rights Act that – had nothing about racism on his mind in his vote against it. In fact, his speech uh, defending his vote against the 1964 Civil Rights Act was published in the New York Times, and he speaks about the two provisions that kept him from voting for it, and while he wishes he could have voted for it, just as he voted for the 1960 and 1957 Civil Rights. Rights acts, And basically, without getting too deeply into it, it had to do with his opposition of the federal government telling private businesses and private workplaces what to do. Barry Goldwater himself had his own stellar reputation on civil rights, helping found the NAACP chapter in Arizona, helping lead the fight to desegregate Sky, uh, Sky Harbor Airport and uh, the Air National Guard here in Arizona. Uh, He had no apologies to give – with no apologies was the title of one of his books. He had no apologies to give on the issue of civil rights and it is a debatable proposition perhaps to this day, especially uh, perhaps in conservative circles as to whether the 1964 Civil Rights Act was all – that it was trumped up to be by its supporters and defenders. For example, Hubert Humphrey, Democrat of Minnesota, its lead champion, who was making the point throughout the debates that this would not be a quota bill. He said famously, if this turns into a quota bill, I will eat my hat. Well, understand what was going on in the 1960s with the Republican and the Democratic Party. 27, 20 Seven of 31 Republican senators supported the Civil Rights Act. That is to say, 21 Democrats voted against it. More members of the Republican Party voted for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 than did members of the Democratic Party. Okay, the party that had the problem with Civil Rights Act was not the Republican Party. The party that had the problem with the Civil Rights Act was The Democratic Party. Who are the leaders against? Who are the most vociferous leaders against the Civil Rights Act of 1964? Sam Irvin, who would become the star of the the, uh, Watergate hearings. William Fulbright. William Fulbright. How many of you have have heard of a Fulbright scholarship named after this segregationist? Robert Byrd. Robert Byrd, who was known as the constitutional authority during the Clinton impeachment. Albert Gore Sr., father of Albert Gore Jr. And then you had some of the leaders of the civil rights legislation were known as conservative Neanderthals. Carl Mundt, Carl Curtis, Roman Ruska, Everett Dirksen, who famously said, quoting Victor Hugo, nothing is so powerful as an idea whose time has come. And the same story was true in the House of Representatives. When... Joe Biden talks civil rights, he's almost always talking rot. He's revising history or forgetting it. He's forgetting the segregation of senators in the Democratic Party that were his friends in the 1970s. And then he says things like this to be a courant. I can't believe he said it. So my quoting it won't do. I must play you the audio. This is from today.
0: But even Dr. King's assassination did not have the worldwide impact that George Floyd's Mm -hmm.
1: death did. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Martin Luther King's assassination did not have the impact that George Floyd's did? What could be the basis behind someone even giving him that thinking or talking point unless he created it on his own? I'll tell you what. I'll tell you exactly what it is because it is out of George Floyd's death that the BLM movement got its sea legs. And it is out of those sea legs that you got Robin – the fascination with Robin DeAngelo's books and teachings on white privilege and Ibram Kendi's efforts and the 1619 project, all of that neo-Marxist – erasure of Western civilization and the kinds of things King said he learned about, Plato, Locke, Rousseau, all of that being tossed out is all from the new dispensation that can, my gosh, hard sentence to utter, but Joe Biden did it, so I'm only paraphrasing and quoting him, elevate George Floyd above Martin Luther King Jr. But as Thomas More said, I show you the times welcome back to the seth Leibson show six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero tim's in peoria hello tim
2: seth Leibson. what a historic day i'm sorry that i was not listening to you last year because i'm almost a kind of a brand new listener oh i love having brand new listeners that's good but if this is what you do on MLK Day, then I will never miss. <laughs> what did, I,
1: what did I do? What did I do? Tell me what I did.
2: Well, the fact that right now, so far, in the first 34 minutes of your show, you have dedicated your show to the great Martin Luther King, the Reverend. Martin
1: Why do Luther you King. call him great? I'm curious, Tim.
2: Oh, wow. Okay, so uh, you know, it's like this that makes Tell everyone
1: what, what you do and problem. who you are first.
2: So uh, I used to be a teacher, for twelve years, AP Gov, AP U.S. History. I'm no longer in the in the uh, K-12 arena. I'm in the higher ed arena in uh, IT, working at gatherings and so on and so forth. But uh, I still have four children, so that's where my education and my uh, kind of cast themselves, if you will. In fact, when it came to my twelve-year-old son today and listening to Joe Biden, I believe uh, and I hope I quote him right. Uh, George Floyd couldn't hold Martin Luther King's jock, unquote, my twelve-year-old son. So, it's uh, so a well-educated twelve-year-old.
0: Uh, kind
2: of, yeah, I love him to death. In any event, yeah, you know, I wonder. I always think about Martin. Luther, I, you know, not only just today, but every day. I, you know, I think there are life lessons for Martin Luther King. But I, I always like the what ifs, and I wonder what Martin Luther King or who he would have been as a man with all the the changing of the world, if you will. Had it not been for Michael Sr. or Martin Sr., who in 1934 changed five-year-old Michael Jr.'s name to Martin Luther after a visit to Germany to understand what Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, did and the world-changing impact he had, and would he have known his son? would have been just as big of a world changer. You know, that's another
1: great point. Yeah, that's another yep. great point. We forget who he was named after. We just kind of say it. We never think through these things. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. yeah,
2: so, so you know, it's it's days like this. When you go to the nation's capital, you don't think about January 6th. You think about the 17th steps down from President Lincoln, where Martin Luther King stood and gave that speech. I used to love, I go on a yearly uh, trip to Washington, D.C. I love having lunch at that site, but one of the things that I love the most is going up to Americans, especially black Americans, that are visiting Lincoln's memorial, and if they don't know, I I always bring their attention to where Martin Luther King said those great words in the I Have a Dream speech, because once they find out, they stand there and they think about, what that day meant to America. And if anyone thinks that Martin Luther King is not, was not the leader of the civil rights movement today, as well as back then, they are sadly mistaken because BLM, they are, they are nothing compared to the great Reverend King.
1: You know, it's funny, Tim, you and I might be, you you and I might've had a very similar uh, upbringing. I, 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 I have done any number of tours, I don't know, 15, 20 of the Lincoln Memorial. I love doing it. Um, and that's something I do, too. Part of the tour I give. Gosh, maybe we should do a station trip. I don't know. But part of the tour I give is is standing in that place and showing people exactly where Martin Luther King stood, but also a discussion of why he chose that place, right? There's something to that yep. as well. And you can't ignore either what's engraved in the Lincoln Memorial when you walk in. The first words you see is that this is a temple. In this temple as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the Union, right? That's what it says. It is also a place of high sanctity, I should think.
2: In my opinion, the Lincoln Memorial is the only memorial outside of Washington's, a little splash of it, where it is. A, it is a memorial of reverence.
1: What a turned Martin you King. on to King so early on, or what was your first understanding of Martin? Well, why, why did he become so big for you? I don't assume you to be what? a black man. You aren't, I don't think, are you?
2: Uh, I, I am not. Yeah. I so, what not. turned However, you on uh, to him? My first, yeah. Uh, well, my mother was a historian. She was a librarian out of uh, New Jersey, so she got to stand uh there at the pond, at the reflective wow. pond, if you will. Wow. Back in the day, in fact, I take, uh, when I took my kiddos to Washington, D.C., I took my kids to where my mom and my dad uh, uh, stood for the seats. And I said, look how far back we were. Yeah. It's not because mom and dad or grandma and grandpa didn't want to get up closer. They couldn't. Because there were so many people here. Tim, this is so LP. critical.
1: Do you have a, a little more time? I, I, I love this. I, I, I'd love to keep you just a little. Uh, good, test. good, good, good. Stay with me. Um, I want to hear more about how you got to appreciate Dr. King. And um, I want to pick a knit with you a little bit about um, the head of the civil rights movement. Uh, and, and we're probably on the same page. We might just think of it a little bit differently or say it a little bit differently. Stay with me. I'm Seth. He's Tim. And your calls are more than welcome here as well. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. We're talking with listener Tim in Peoria. He's a teacher. We're talking about Martin Luther King Jr., what he's taught his children both in the classroom and in, under his roof and uh, how he uh, became interested and uh, supportive of uh, Martin Luther King's work. So, so Tim, your your mama was, your mom was a New Jersey uh, his, uh, a resident and historian. She actually went to that march in Washington. Keep going, buddy.
2: Yeah, Thank you. I appreciate it. And then she went over to military history because my dad served 31 glorious years in the United States Army. So that's kind of where I hail. Uh, As a youth, I understood U.S. history. I always delved into it. I was born in Lexington, Massachusetts. And as we know, that's where it all started, in my opinion. But, um, you know, I just couldn't delve into black history. Now, I am of the thought that black history is American history. So therefore, uh, February is not needed. But that's for another show. Uh, When I became an adult, I still didn't know enough. I did my readings. I went to school. I did really well in social studies. I was horrible in math. So when I had my opportunity to really delve into the education of, of black America, I was stationed in Savannah, Georgia in the early 90s, and I elected to attend Savannah State College, which is an HBCU. Now it is a Savannah State University. And there, kind of that's where my learning began. I mean, you know, firsthand learning, when I started talking about you know, looking at the books and speaking to teachers who were experts in any event. So that's kind of where it was born. And then moving into why Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King still stands today as the example of all things American, just my opinion. I just think that adversity, sacrifice, dedication to family, dedication to country, all of those are 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 closed up in that individual we all know as Martin Luther King and only pay him you know, the respect that he deserves in a lot of cases on this day and during Black History Month. Uh, You know, so let me ask you you a question, if this is true
1: for you as much as it is for me. um, This is true for me. I'm curious if this is true for you as well. When I started to study King, there was another thing he did that made me study. He made me want to study more American history. He Mm -hmm. he 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 would speak a lot about American history. And, and, and that led me, believe it or not, to my interest in American history. It's kind of your point about you know African-American history and American history maybe being all really the same thing. But his, his speeches, his sermons, my gosh, they're, they're, they're fabulous to listen to and they're available online. That led me to yeah, a, deeper, were, yeah. a deeper study and in interest in American history. I don't know if that was true of you, too. He was, in other words, yeah, for yeah. me, the catalyst to, to appreciate American history.
2: Yeah, you're spot on because in his sermons, in his writings and all, you never, you never sense color. You never no. sense race as being a, a, an issue. Now, you know, when I go back and you know the civil rights movement is what it is, if we, you know, I look at the civil rights movement all the way going back into the desegregation and the attempted desegregation of the military. I go all the way back to reconstruction is really when the civil rights movement began. Modern day civil rights uh you know, movement began really as far as in the face of the American people in 1955. In fact, one of my sons is named after that young boy who, who unfortunately was killed so tragically in 1955. And it's 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 just a it's a tragedy that that had to happen. I, I point to that because a lot of people just don't understand that in this in day and age of BLM, everybody's really missing the mark yeah. about the sacrifices. And the hardships that black Americans have taken on today is nothing compared to what it was like from Reconstruction moving forward when we really start putting an eye on it. But you wanted to uh, take a take a jab or take a shot at my chin on the leader of civil rights. Let's do it. Ding, ding.
1: You know, the one of one of the interesting things, Tim, and I don't. Are you the teacher I asked to watch that brown eyes, blue eyes documentary? Are you the same teacher? We, we, we've uh, talked.
2: I, I think so. I think so. Yeah. And, and I don't know I, if you I had understand. a chance yeah. to
1: watch it or not. It's it's this documentary from 1968 in a small schoolhouse in Iowa where the teacher uh, gives all the students with blue eyes all the privileges and anyone with brown eyes doesn't get any privileges and has to basically sit in the back of the classroom. Right. Um, and I, I and, I, I and then the next similar. day she yeah. reverses it. Yeah. This was her way. She did this. She was inspired to do this. To teach the importance of Martin Luther King just after he was assassinated. That was her way of trying to teach these young uh, children, who, how old were they six or seven years old, uh, what Martin Luther King Jr. meant. And of course, the end of the lesson, a lot a lot, of, a lot of civil rights scholars will lecture you and me to no end that you know Martin Luther King Jr. was more than one speech on one day. And boy, they don't need to tell me. I think we need to tell them that's right, because if you read all his speeches and all his sermons, they were all saying pretty much the same thing. Yeah, it's easy to pick from 1963, but how about three years before that? At Lincoln College in Pennsylvania, my dream is that one of the first things we notice in, is an amazing universalism in our founding. Our founding does not say some men. It says all men. It does not say all white men. It says all men, which includes black men. It does not say all Gentiles, but it says all men, which includes Jews. It does not say all Protestants, but it says all men, which includes Catholics. Um, this was king, not just one day, one speech, 63. This was king throughout. This was King throughout, and I that, have to uh, point out like the last that. thing I just love pointing out to people, it, because it's moving beyond all get-out. It's so much more moving than the than the than the crud we're hearing today from BLM, et cetera. His last rally, his last protest, his last effort was a sanitation strike in Memphis, and if people go and look at those pictures, you see all his followers, all his men, all these san- sanitation workers, of course, all black, holding signs saying, I am a man. They don't say I'm a black man. They say, I am a man. All they wanted was to teach the Declaration of Independence's universalism. That's all they wanted. That's all he wanted.
2: Right. No, I, I totally agree with you. I always think it's funny when people lecture me when they try to go at me with, well, he's, Martin Luther King was more than just you know, one speech in Washington. I yeah, yeah. uh, say, so isn't it funny? I don't you would you not agree then then President Lincoln is more than just one speech. Yeah. In fact, if you really want to get the viewpoints of Lincoln, if you really want to take a stab at it, America, go back to eighteen fifty four when he gave a speech in Peoria, yeah. not Arizona, yeah. Yeah. and talk about yeah. fairness and popular yeah. sovereignty and all the other good things. When he brought up the Declaration of Independence. Then and only then will you understand and get some footing as to where Lincoln stood when it came to equality among men.
1: Yeah. I, Tim, I, I, I think our appreciations and our affinities uh, uh, came from much the same place. It, my mom was the one who initially taught me about Martin Luther King. It was my mom. She 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 happened— uh, she happened to be a historian as well, or a librarian, a librarian and historian, which was kind of similar in those days in what she was doing. But yeah, it was the same upbringing, and 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 I suppose too, the interesting thing I took from it was how much Martin Luther King Jr. wanted to welcome people from other 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 movements. You know, he wanted Jewish. Support. He wanted Catholic support. He wanted white people buying into what he did because he knew that 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 the movement was about all of us. He knew it was about all of us. He, he really
2: did. And Seth, one last thing in closing. Yeah. If people don't understand how the, how the I Have a Dream speech came about, take a look at the white faces that assisted yeah. the NAACP yeah. to get that mark. You, 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 yeah. you, you bet. You bet.
1: You bet. You bet. You bet. That what if or what if he were today, it's hard to answer, but given the entire body of his work, which all said the same thing or at least stood on the same principle, maybe it's not so hard. More of that. I wish we had more of it. Thank you, Tim. Bless you, sir. We'll be right back. Paul, that was making a point about Republicans and civil rights. And it's easy uh, to listen to Joe Biden and think he's teaching history. He's teaching rot. And I don't know if it's because he's trying to make some grand apology for his party. I don't know if it's projection or I don't know if it's just base divisiveness. I'm inclined to think it's the third. Um, there, there is no effort in this administration whatsoever to unite this country. It is trying to pick apart every wound it possibly can to make sure it doesn't heal because the Democrats thrive on this sort of thing. When you hear modern-day historians talk about the Republican Party – and this quote-unquote Southern strategy they speak of that uh, is a dog whistle to white racism. Please understand the Southern strategy began under the hero Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It was the union coalitions of the North with the Southern segregationist Democrats of the South. And that's why all those governors and all those segregationists were not Republicans. They were, in fact, Democrats. All the people Joe Biden mentioned, they were Democrats. They were not Republicans. When you think about the efforts to – Land the hundred and first airborne or the u s marshals into the segregated parts of the South that were thwarting brown versus Board of education that was done by Dwight Eisenhower, not John Kennedy when you think about when you think about the black vote up until As I said, in 1960, we were at least in the Republican Party going to get 30 percent of it in any given year. It was after 64 that it changed and it had to do, as I said, with the um, with the nomination of Barry Goldwater. But they tried to foist onto Barry Goldwater views that he was not responsible for, nor were they views that he held. He was the most integrationist Republican you could find. In fact, Richard Nixon um, was uh, one of perhaps the most popular Republicans in the South with the black community, so much so, so much so that there were debates in the Republican Party about whether he would help or hurt the ticket based on how much the blacks in the South liked him, believe it or not. I – um If you want to learn that history, go read Herbert Parmet's book on on Richard – biography of Richard Nixon. This is a problem the Democrats have very keenly and very cleverly foisted on to the Republican Party. And it's not something we have really very much to make up for or apologize for. It's the Democratic Party that has. And their version of makeup and apology seems to be nothing so much – as raw projection based on racial division. And I think that's sewer politics. And that's why I call what Joe Biden and the modern Democratic Party says rot. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back.